So if we're trying to create a change, what kind of change is it to be? If it is a small change and we know what we need to do, then we need a coach. If it is a big change and we know what we need to do, then we need a prophet. If it is a small change and we do not know what we need to do, then we need a therapist. <laughs> if it is a big change and we do not know what we need to do, then we need a poet. <laughs> there we go. That's why I'm here. <laughs> And that's it, I don't have anything more. <laughs> um, my name's Biddle Duke, I'm the founding editor of East Magazine, which is published by the East Hampton Star, and there are copies in the back, um, and this is an East Hampton Star, East Magazine event. You'll have to forgive us for the alarmist advertising, uh, pristine paradise lost. <laughs> I was just trying to, trying to wrangle a crowd. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to thank Joe Lee and, and Heidi for, for organizing this and providing this really great space for this conversation. Thank you. I'd also like to thank Jax for providing the beverages and Cavagnolas for the cheese and the fruit and the crackers. I'm going to make some introductions. Uh, David and Helen Rattray and the East Hampton Star and East Magazine, thank you for, for sponsoring and pulling these, these people together. It's great that we got such a good turnout tonight because even though it's going to be fun and interesting, it's not necessarily a Yahoo topic, right? It's kind of like getting a group together to talk about climate change. We're organizing this uh, so that we had a fair representation of views. We had scientists and passionate advocates. That was a little bit of a challenge because I think all of us in this room sort of, you know, are, are somewhere in one of those two camps. Let me start with Linda. Linda James is uh, a sustainable wind energy advocate. And any one of you could just jump in to correct me if I've got it wrong or you want to add something. Uh, Linda is a sustainable wind energy advocate and a member of the East Hampton Town Sustainable Energy Committee. Energy Sustainable. Energy Sustainable Committee. Energy is the key word. You can correct me two times afterward because there are two other members on this. Panel. I know that. <laughs> I'm very proud of it, too. Um, next to Linda is Bill Chaliff, who's an environmental advocate and an uh, architect who specializes in sustainable designs and also a member of the committee. <laughs> uh, next to Bill is, excuse me, Brendan Davison, who's a farmer. He's the founder and operator of Goodwater Farms, an organic herbs and greens farm that recently re relocated fully to Bridgehampton and he's in the process of becoming trying to make his 32 acre farm a biodynamic farm. Next to Brendan is Scott Bludorn, also a member of the committee, an artist and uh, an environmental advocate um, who's done a lot of work in the environment and he's currently on a push for a single-use plastic ban in East Hampton. Bob DeLuca is the CEO and president of the Group for the East End. And Scott Chasky is the director of Quail Hill Farm, which I think is one of the first CSAs in the United States. Yeah, first one in, first one in New York State. Uh, he's many other things, and I could spend much more time talking about these people, but um, I think the idea here to kick it off David Rathray, the editor of the Standing Star, is the moderator, not me, 
And the idea to kick off, kick off the conversation, we've asked each member of the panel to give a score, a grade, on an A to F scale for where we are on the South Fork, or if you will, the East End, on sustainability, green living. Toward the end, we're going to turn to you guys for questions. Dave? Well, I, I think we should probably roll down the line with the, you know, I, I really want to hear the grade because I think that um, how, we're, how we're doing is, is something in a way that we never really ask collectively. And I think that the six of you are in a, in a kind of uniquely well-suited to, to give a read, an honest read on, on where we are now. And, it, you know, if you have an introduction that you want to give as well. Um, but let's, should we go down the line, right? Linda, you, you know, where, where are we at? I'm glad you didn't say the ladies first. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for saying You're that. Um, I'm the acting chair of the Energy Sustainability Committee, Energy Sustainability Committee, but my vocabulary is climate change. That's the language that I speak. What is interesting in the track that, that I have followed in my better understanding of what a changing climate means in our coastal community is I uh, spent six years as the vice chair of the Garden Club of America as their uh, vice Chair for Climate Change. I had my own portfolio, probably maybe because at that time nobody else wanted it. But it was a great learning experience for me, just to say quickly, someone asked me at one of my presentations, because I went around and did, there are 200 clubs in the Garden Club of America, and I spoke at a few of them. One person raised their hand and they said, well, we know all that, what can we do about it? Here's what we can do about it. First of all, locally, as a coastal community with extreme weather events, with an eroding coastline, with a rising sea level, we can think local. What can we do in this community? And what we are doing from the Energy Sustainability Committee's perspective is humbly said historic. The fact that in 2014, our town board mandated a 100% transformation from fossil fuel generated energy to clean renewable energy by 2020, which we will address later this 2020 date. We were the first in the state of New York to make such a mandate. And what we have been doing with the Energy Sustainability Committee and the great support that we have from the town, particularly from the Department of Natural Resources, is really uh, very encouraging. We are a climate smart community. You'll hear more about all of this. But it began really with the town. And since I see one and two, several members from our town board, we have a great deal to thank them for. They are visionary, 
and they have spoken out strongly in favor of clean energy. So what about a grade? You, uh, well, I have to give us, I, I thought I gave it, historic. We are doing something that nobody else in the state at that time was doing. That's number one. And number two, uh, now that we can add to our portfolio of clean and renewable energy resources, we can now add wind power, um, which is, of course, part of a long discussion. So I do indeed believe from the energy sustainability that we are doing a first-rate job. So, Bill. Um, a through F, or you want to give it an H, as Scott put it, for historic. <laughs> or, or. I, I have a letter. I've written it down in my book ahead of time, so I can't fudge and change right now. Right. <laughs> You're going to tell us. And, and I, um, I think the world of Linda, and I hope that this doesn't come between us, but Linda, I have an F written down here. And I have a slightly different perspective. I've been involved with energy issues since the 70s out here, and I have, a, I have a lot of data points because of my age, I suppose, <laughs> and so I can see how things have changed uh, over time. Uh, energy is critically important, but there are two sides to the energy coin. There's the supply side, which is terrific that we use wind power and renewables for the supply side, but I'm tremendously concerned with and have been for decades on the demand side you know what are what are the user patterns that we have that uh, cause us to use three to four to five times more energy per capita than other developed uh, nations in the world let's say Germany Scandinavia Japan where though where you can argue that those countries have uh, quality of life, that's equal to or higher than what we enjoy in the United States, depending on what metrics you use. And so it's very clear to me that statement shows us that the, uh, the cost, you know, the amount of energy you use, uh, there's no correlation between that and the quality of life. So why do we persist in using, again, three times or more? Out on the East End, it's three times nationally. That's the national average the United States compared to the uh, per capita use in the other countries I mentioned, but on the East End, I suspect that that number is much higher, maybe five to ten times more. So why is that? I, I chalk a lot of that up to the uh, zoning, the, the human settlement pattern that we have out here, and as much as we, we love it, we think of it as paradise, as Biddle said earlier, uh, it's not rural it's not the rural paradise that we have in our minds. And we drive through it and move through it every day and are, bl and are blind to these changes. I, I remember coming out uh, when I was a kid, before I moved out full time in 72, uh, and going just to visit all the farms and see all the livestock. And you know, there, there haven't been, well, there are some cows in, in Watermill, but it's really, uh, that's gone, and I'm desperately concerned about the future of agricultural industry and the maritime industries out here. Uh, in 72, we were about 15% resort 
based. Our economy was about 15% resort based, and the other 85 was agricultural and maritime based. And that number is flipped entirely now. We are 85% resort. We have a resort based economy. And that does not pr promote a healthy community. We, we have, uh, well, what is a healthy community? We're concerned about that overall. And diversity, if you look at diversity in uh, various fields, different ways, that's the ultimate measure. And we do not do well in the diversity scale. In fact, just to look around here, see who we are. I don't see a single person of color in the room, for example. So the, these are issues. Uh, the social ramifications are tremendous. The economic ramifications are tremendous. But to have a suburban settlement pattern is a real killer for us in many, many ways. On the energy side, on the supply side, it's an absolute killer. But I'm very concerned about the social impact of the built environment on the natural environment. And uh, that's why I stand behind my F. So it's a, quite an interesting segue into a very contemporary farmer. Brendan, your methods are sort of a non-traditional method of farming. And a little bit, yeah. Yeah, and I sort of wonder what, what your thoughts are on where we're at, and if you will give us a grade. So I know absolutely nothing. I have no uh, background in any kind of environmental studies. I don't sit on any boards. Uh, I know nothing. So in that, knowing nothing, I just basically decided to start just looking around at where we live. I mean, I do every day. But I got to go up on a friend's plane, flew around the East End a couple weeks ago. Um, and from that perspective, and my experience leading up to getting the permitting for my greenhouse in Bridgehampton, which was like me basically saying that I'm putting a nuclear waste dump. <laughs> and the way that I was treated in the process was uh, pretty interesting and sad. Uh, living out here. Um, the woman at the desk at the Southampton building, town board, said to me, I said, well, how long will it take for me to get a permit to build this greenhouse? And she said, uh, it's at least four to six months. And I was like, what do you mean four to six months? It's just a greenhouse, and I'm going to grow some microgreens, and we're all going to eat it. She was, like, she was like, darling, this is no longer a farming community. This is a resort community. And that kind of like sent me back. So my grade going, sorry, I got it, uh, is a C minus. Um, so in that looking from up above down on everything, what I really noticed um, was the size of the homes that are out here. And then from seeing the size of those homes, then I thought, okay, what goes on in those homes? Um, you know, five, 10,000 square foot homes. Um, and then I went a little deeper and was like, okay, what are the problems out here? I had a soil test on my farm and it was super high in nitrates. So I said, okay, well, what's that from? Well, it was the, the previous farmer was using fertilizer and stuff like that. Okay, so we were, the farming over the last 50 years out here, there's a lot of nitrate chemicals, but over time, you know, since there's no really no farms left out here anymore, so, okay, what's, what's the culprit here? And 
it's the big ginormous homes that are people are using all kinds of you know, shampoos, conditioners, all this stuff, laundry detergents, uh, and that all gets leached out into our groundwater, which then leaches out into our water systems, ocean. So that's kind of what I saw, and then I just started asking people, like, how was it back in the day? I mean, there's a lot of people that are a lot older than me that have been out here a lot longer than I have. And one of my, uh, one of the guys is said in the seven, early, late 60s, early 70s, when he was a kid, you weren't allowed to bring out or buy any laundry detergent out here because they wanted to keep it pristine and the water system because they knew at that time that it would pollute the waterways and the water systems. So a little bit more hopeful as C minus. Um, I think there's a lot that can be done. And, you know, I think uh, the smarter people can help with that. So. Although the lower the grade, the more that can be done. I'm very. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a business out here. I don't want to piss anybody off. <laughs> Scott, you're uh, an advocate for all kinds of things environmental, and I wonder what your take is and what what grade you would you would give us today, 2017. Okay. Uh, 2017, East End of Long Island. Um, there's so many issues at stake, I think, in where we are as a community and um, and how far I think that we've come. I, I'm a little bit more middle of the road. Um, you know, Bill, been here probably a, a, a lot longer than I have, probably almost double. Um, I was born out here, um, 30 years old, and in that time frame of growing up as, you know, a young person to now, I'm still a young person. Um, I've seen change. I've seen a lot more encouraging things, like people really waking up to the fact that our waters are in huge, huge uh, dire straits. Um, we've had red tides. We've had a loss of diversity um, in all of our ecosystems. And the fact that all of these um, issues are interrelated um, is something that more people are understanding now. <clears throat> and that also plays into diversity of uh, People, income equality, that kind of thing. Um, I'm going to give our uh, our town uh, somewhere around a C plus, B minus, um, and I say that because I'm hopeful uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, we have sustainability committee, which didn't exist a couple of years ago, uh, for the express the express mission of finding um, a path forward into a new energy future, which I believe is absolutely necessary for continuing civilization not only here, but at the planet. I do think that we are on the verge of a global change in consciousness where there's really no disputing the fact that climate is changing and that <clears throat> we're gonna have to do something about it as a global civilization or we simply won't exist anymore. Um, as an artist, I try to address that in a lot of ways through my art and through, ad uh, I advocate for a lot of things, including um, yeah, a problem of marine plastics um, and also disposable culture. Something like this uh, coffee cup right here, it's as simple as changing the paradigm, uh, changing consciousness about what disposable culture is, which is kind of our de facto way of living, at least in Western society and modern global capitalist society. So I try to encourage people to think about what they're doing when they're consuming. You know, it's, uh, it's a consumer product, but it's something as simple as bringing your own reusable Tupperware or what have you to a place like a takeout, uh, to restaurants, 
you're eliminating a huge amount of waste that does go into uh, a waste stream that's very hard to deal with. So that issue, among others, are things that I'm personally interested in, uh, but I am hopeful, I think, for the future. So. Um, Bob DeLuca, you've been in this game a long time, and... Um, what's left of me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's your take in terms of a grade, and, and what direction is the grade going? I guess that's an interesting question for some roots. Yeah, right? and I think it reflects yeah. a lot of where we are as a, as a culture and people. So when I looked at this, I looked at it more like an SAT with a couple of different categories for scoring. So, you know, my organization was founded in 1972, about the time that the Long Island Expressway and the Sunrise Highway made their way to the East End. Mm -hmm. And shortly thereafter came about what is now the Bridgehampton Common Shopping Center. It was originally a grants. And the organization was founded over that particular project because it represented an incoming tide of changing development patterns um, that obviously exist to this day. But it was terrifying enough to people that they shaped an organization. And since that time, we've sort of banged around in the area of land use and water quality protection and all these different things um, that shaped the environment that we now have across the East End. And so the three areas that I look at in categorizing that, and maybe you'd be surprised, two of them are, are, are people-related, and only one is the sort of substantive outcome. One is, what's the intention of the community at any point in time? And I say this to you because two years after I moved out here in the, in the uh, late 80s, I was escorted by police to my car after saying that there should be a uh, turn monitor on a beach in the town of Riverhead. Mm -hmm. And that the uproar from the crowd was enough to lead the town board to think that I would be killed. And so the only time since I've ever been out here I had a police escort was, was that particular meeting. And I can tell you that there, or if you were, the, if you were in East Hampton Town Hall at a planning board meeting back in the mid-1980s, I mean, it was a pretty good slugfest. There was a real debate about what the intention was for this place. And you could argue a million ways over that maybe that intention went awry and some of the things that Bill talks about. But I will say that today, the overall intention of understanding that the relationship of the people and the place here are ultimately integrated into the environment is about a thousand times better than it was when I first showed up. And there's something to be said for that because those intentions drive people drive policy, drive personal change, and ultimately drive you know, the outcome of the region. So on the intention side, I give us like an A minus, because I think, and the other thing is, in part of my career, I worked and looked at the 10 towns in Suffolk County as part of a job with the County Health Department, and I will tell you that the grading system of giving, probably East Hampton in particular, but the East End in general, a high score for intention, I believe is true. Because there is something that draws people here, that keeps people here, that connects people to the the earth here, no matter how messed up we get, that is a positive driver, uh, and, and I, I feel very strongly about that, which is why I can continue to keep doing this stuff. The second piece is the more obvious one, what are the outcomes, right? When you, we do all this, we have our intentions, this is like deciding to run a marathon versus actually running the marathon, right? So you buy the sneakers and you get the sweatpants, <laughs> three months later you look outside and yeah, it's still too cold. Um, <laughs> but, you know, as outcomes go, the planning and zoning of this region, um, in some ways, was and is light years ahead of the competition. And a lot of people have said, and it's probably true, you have to drive through western Long Island to get to eastern Long Island, and it's a very educational experience, the terror that it strikes into your heart on the way out. <laughs> now, the opposite seduction is it starts to lead you to believe that no matter what we have here, it's a zillion times better than there, so we probably should, you know, we're doing fine. I don't think that's true. But some of the outcomes here... East Hampton Town in particular has some of the most progressive laws on the books to protect land, to protect water, 
to protect our aquifer resources, to protect wetlands at the local level. We have a national estuary program in our backyard that people said would never happen. We have a community preservation fund that's raised over a billion dollars for land protection that people said would never happen and was immoral and illegal and there'd never be another piece of real estate ever sold on the East End if it ever happened. And we've recently, you know, we've re recently, you know, dabbled with that particular law to try to create space to deal with the water quality issues that we now know are happening. So there's a big list of real, measurable, tangible outcomes that allow us to take some legitimate pride in the fact that people in this community thought enough of it to try to protect it. And it doesn't mean that everything that, that Bill mentioned isn't also happening, but it means that this is what was needed even to get us to an F. So when you live on a sliver of sand, and you, the more people you pile up on that sliver of sand, no matter how careful you are, no matter how much you think about it, we are in one of the most fragile places there probably is on the planet, and we forget that because we're here all the time and it looks like every, you, know, you can drive here and go there. Um, and that on the outcome side is probably the next biggest area for us to work in because it's getting much more personal. You know, when I first started, it was about subdivisions carving up the landscape. It was like you were rolling out a map and that was going to be protected and that wasn't going to be protected and this was going to, you know, we were going to put development here. The land use pattern for East Hampton and a lot of the East End is already set. So this is like the final chapter, and the final, in the star of the final chapter is us. It's the energy we use, the garbage we produce, the traffic we produce, how we use the energy that comes into our homes. All of those things is going to be the sort of next generation of environmental change that happens out here. On the outcome side, I give us a B, um, and maybe it's a little generous, but I think I give it a B in comparison to what other communities facing similar circumstances have been able to do. And it's not nearly some of the things that we've been able to do here. And then the third and the final category is ethics. So what do we believe personally and what's our commitment to that belief? And this gets to the next generation of environmental um, protection out here. You know, from your cup to an organic farming to, you know, essentially changing the way that we manage our human waste, all of these things that we integrate personally have a great deal of effect on not just our individual homes, but on the people that we will elect to lead this community in the future, what we will ask of our elected leadership, not just here, but at the state and at the county level, level, how we will integrate ourselves into that process. A couple of my greatest fears, if you've ever been to a community, um, and thank God this doesn't really exist at it, when you go to a town meeting and no one is there, and no one comes, those places exist. And you can have a huge project or something that can affect the entire community and the public has given up. And the letters to the editor in your paper prove that that is not true. <laughs> and anybody who's been to uh, Southampton Town Board meeting in the last year or some of these major development projects where they've had to move it to three different locations because 400 people showed up, that means that the ethical commitment here exists. What we do with it, how we refine it, what it becomes is really up to us. Overall, I find for myself the hardest thing to do is to integrate the bigger picture into my lifestyle, right? So. I, you know, I have 25 cups to keep me from using plastic cups. I don't know that I'm helping. I got 55 reusable bags that I leave at home and I go in the grocery store. <laughs> Maybe I'm making more of a mess. Um, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So when it gets right down to us, you know, I have a, I have a daughter who's 19, and when she comes home from college, I can't get her out of the shell. <laughs> so my water consumption for the weeks that she's home is probably, and I just can't stop it. 
And, and you know, I'm an environmental guy. I should, there should be something I should be able to do to make that work, but I can't. So at the end of the day, you know, I think my overall grade was a, with a, you know, kind of a low A on, on the uh, cold intention. water. Try that. Cold yeah. Water. <laughs> well, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I got myself, thanks to Bill, a solar thermal uh, hot water system. You were the person that told me that was the best bang for the buck, and I did. So now, of course, my daughter knows how much money we're saving. <laughs> so my screaming and pounding at the door is met with, but Dad. You said the solar panels save us all this money. <laughs> so you can't win. But anyway. Um, so you got an A and a B. Yeah, and a, and a C plus, C plus. On, on, on the ethics. Overall, I think that grade is it like a B. And Scott, you've been keeping an eye on the same small piece of land and big, bigger pieces of land for decades now. What's your, what's your take? What's your grade? What do you see? Okay, so um, I'm going to have a little preface here because... Uh, when I'm asked to do things like this, I, you know, have to say, well, why am I here, and uh, what can I offer? So I heard someone uh, spout this at a uh, land trust conference some years ago, and um, I just wanted to share it. So if we're trying to create a change, what kind of change is it to be? If it is a small change and we know what we need to do, then we need a coach. If it is a big change and we know what we need to do, then we need a profit. If it is a small change and we do not know what we need to do, then we need a therapist. <laughs> if it is a big change and we do not know what we need to do, then we need a poet. <laughs> there we go. That's why I'm here. <laughs> And that's it, I don't have anything more to do. <laughs> no, I'm so, gonna, that's, that's grading on a curve. Right? <laughs> I'm going to be a bit of a rebel. I'm actually here because I'm really looking forward to the discussion, so I'm only going to say a few things right now. In the discussion, I'm sure I'll address agricultural issues. I also, it's, it's a, a funny position to be in because actually right now, so we've been doing what we're doing, we're going into our 28th year, when we started out here, when we started the, the CSA farm, the land trust had been existing for seven years or something like that. And uh, by the way, that land trust was started by John Halsey, one individual with the help of a couple other people. And in 30 years' time, uh, we've protected 12,000 acres of land on the East End. That's a pretty good thing. It should be a good score for that. Right? But I'm going to be a bit of a rebel because I sent my kids to schools that didn't have grades. Uh, so I, I'm not sure I want to, I don't want to go against that, so I'm going to give us a pass. Pass fail, right? But the, 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 the grades have been right from the age of the end. They've been kind of coming up like this here, so mine's a, mine's a high pass. And the reason is because it's interesting that no one yet has mentioned the CPF fund. That's a really big deal. That's such a big deal. Over a billion dollars and how much land has been protected, etc. Also, from my point of view, when we came out here, there was one other organic farm, which was the Green Thumb, and they helped get us going. Right now, I don't know what the count is. There's 30 or more, probably 40 organic farms in here in the, in the North Fork, etc. And, um, and, and the land had, there's, I also was told, um, you know, when I, when I arrived here, I, I didn't know the place. I went and talked to older farmers, and I was told farming is dead on the East End. And, and it doesn't look like it is to me. Mm -hmm. 
does not look like that. It isn't. It's a different type of farming, and that's what's happened. I'm really very pleased to have been part of that. So that's part of the pass, the passing grade. The other side of it is that um, we uh, also built a, a greenhouse recently, and it did take six months <laughs> planning permission to build the greenhouse on uh, protected land uh, operated by a community farm. And it took us six months to do that. At the moment, um, there's actually a, uh, a, a kind of a very frightening lawsuit that has been brought against the county. And, uh, and, and it was uh, held up in court uh, that on, no, on none of the protected land that the county uh, has protected through development rights purchase um, can any structures of any kind be built. Um, and this is, a, people are really looking closely at this because this could have an unbelievable impact on farming throughout New York State or in the whole region. So in other words, um, at the present time, no one can put up a fence. No one can build a shed, let alone a barn. So, um, you know, these are really problematic things for farming. And what does farming mean to this place? Well, it's the soul of it, basically. So um, we, want to, we want to protect it, but I'm just going to stick with the past. That's all right. I, I can work that into the average here. Um, <laughs> so, but it, something you said I think was very interesting in, in that the idea of big changes and small changes, which I think maybe we'll just sort of open it up to whomever wants to sort of step in first, and I'll keep it moving back and forth. But I, mean, I think we all agree that from where we are today, some kind of changes are needed to move us forward in a sustainable way. And so the question is, and I, are big changes needed, or are these small changes? And that, and that would have bearing on legal changes and also individual changes, what we could do in our own households, or, or uh, how we get our power, what kind of vehicles we drive. Um, and maybe I'll start with you, Bill, because I, I do think I hear in your work, and I've read some stories from over a decade ago, that big, this, is a, this is a time for big changes, not... not chipping away at small things. Um. Well, absolutely, but we need both. The, the little changes are part of the big change. It's, a, it's an integrated approach. And so, you know, I salute Scott for bringing his cup, and I salute Bob for bringing his cup, and for bringing his cup, and for bringing his cup. <laughs> but but it's really, that's, that's very important to do. That's extremely important to do, but it's a big change. And again, I'll stand by the F for this reason. I, I, and I should have mentioned it uh, when I first spoke. If you're in a car and you're going 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction, what is the first thing you do? You don't just grab the wheel and do a 90, right? You have, to, you have to slow down and then you have to turn 180 degrees and then you start going the other way. I still believe that we're in the slowing down phase. So that's why I stand by the F. We have to turn around. It is true that the land use is a, is a big driver. That's the skeleton for this whole animal out here, is how we use, is how we use the land. And I, I remember when I first came out, and I go to the building department to do a, uh, to get, get a building permit, one of my very first projects, it's again back in the early 70s, uh, in the town of Southampton, the building department was in um, 
what is now, what's the building now? It's a retail Saks. store. Sachs, right, Sachs. But that, was, that building was purpose-built as Town Hall. And it still says Town Hall on the top. But it's Sachs inside. You know, it's like many people you know, right? So it's one thing. Anyway, <laughs> inside that corner, you know, it turns the corner, there's a, a, a curving staircase that goes up from the first floor to the second floor. And of course, underneath that is a curving staircase that goes down to the basement. So the building department, you take that curving staircase, you go down to the basement, there are no windows, and there are two guys sitting there under the wedge of the stair. <laughs> <laughs> that was it, two guys. One was building, that was Henry DeCilia, and then under, further tucked into the wedge, and if you, if you ever met him, you would see, you know, it was a short guy. <laughs> was um, uh, Pike, Otis Pike sitting at a desk. They each had a desk and maybe one or two file cabinets. That was it. And the amount of permits that got processed in a year back in 1972, I'm going to hazard a guess was something like 40 or something like in, in Southampton. Southampton is roughly twice the population of East Hampton. So whatever was going on there, half of that is going on here. So it was, uh, but the land use maps were created in 57. And all that zoning, and I'm looking at these things, trying to figure out what to do. You know, I'm anxious to do my buildings, and and where, how how you go about doing this. And over the map is this big toned area where it was happened to be stippled, and it was labeled agricultural overlay district. And I thought, oh, this is great. I mean, this is why we're here. This is what the East End is all about. And as Scott said, it's the soul. Of, of the, of its defining characteristic of the East End. So I go to the building department and I say, yeah, but that's also one and two acre zoning, so you can build right there. And I could never understand what this was, what was going on, what, was, what that was all about. So what we have to do, and uh, David brought the word in earlier today, which is, is regenerative. We have to go back. And it sounds like, you know, this is pie in the sky, we can never do it. Well, Linda will tell you that it was pie in the sky when Gordy and Rocky said, we're going to be the first town in New York that's going to be, uh, you know, fossil free by 2020 or 2030, whatever the number was, doesn't matter, you know, that we're going to be the first one. And he was one guy standing up trying to make things happen, or... As Scott says, you know, John Halsey was one guy standing up saying, we have to do something. And, uh, and now the, the town board unanimously voted to make that its mission, and this is tumbling right through. We'll see it in Southampton. It's now being discussed in Southampton. And uh, we, have to, we have to reshape. We have to really reshape the landscape, because I, to, I, I firmly believe that the suburban settlement pattern is a is, is a deadly, deadly thing on so many levels. And again, when we talk about the physical world, the, the built environment versus the natural environment, if we move past that, again, the, the, uh, this is just the armature, the, the, the built environment is the armature for the social landscape. And how we relate to each other, how we come together and meet each other, is uh, totally inhibited by the suburban settlement path. We have all these transportation problems. Uh, that's also because we, we, uh, 
are an auto-centric plan instead of a public transportation plan or other ways of getting around. We travel in these little glass and steel bubbles. I don't care if they're electric. You know, it's still the same impact on community. And uh, community is what I really see gone to hell. So I'm going to take your yes. H and use it for hell. Oh, no. <laughs> as long as we have a P on the end for paradise. Now, wait a second. You can't take my H. You, you took an F. That's so right. you stick with your F. So, so, Linda, do you think we're at a, we're, we still need big changes to get to where... Because I think the sense is that we're not... Whether we're at A and F or whatever, we're not really entirely pleased with where we are today. But, that's but I'm, I'm saying the H is for hopeful. And I'm saying hopeful because I look out into this room and because I have an opportunity to spend time talking to people in the community and I agree with, with the panel that we understand. We understand and we want to make it better. And we just have to continue to find the right equations that are going to work in this community. I think that what's most important, first of all, is that we're thinking local. And that's never been more important as we watch everything else around us implode. That we look to ourselves and we say, what can we do here now to make it better? And we have, we have tools. We have, uh, I call in, at the um, Energy Sustainability Committee, we have a, a package of tools. For example, <clears throat> we just passed, uh, the town board just approved something called HERS. And that's a rating system that is going to be applied to new construction housing. Now, is that going to make all of the 14,000 square feet, you know, palaces that are going up disappear? No, but it was enough that we have a pool pump regulation. We have an opportunity here to use smart thermostats. We are looking forward to something called community choice aggregation, where we can all come together and buy clean power. There are options out there if we think about it positively. <laughs> beginning to sound like my mother, but we have to be hopeful or nothing's going to work. You know what's interesting is I've, I've several times heard this point about the tension between um, a you know, resort community and a sustainable community, and I, I'm thinking about you, Brendan, and, and you, Scott, as food producers in a resort community running up against bureaucracy, running, I just kind of wonder what is it like to be doing what you do, Brendan, here? Um, you know, producing food in, a, in an environment, uh, at least sort of in terms of settlement patterns and, and regulations, it's not terribly friendly. No. <laughs> <laughs> are, you in here for the, are you here for the long haul on this? I mean, you just set down much more in the way of Roots and Bridgehampton. I mean, yeah, I'm here for the long haul. Yeah. I love it. I yeah. Love it. yeah. Um, you know, here's one thing I noticed, you know, East Hampton Town has a couple of functional uh, wind turbines on land for uh, along Long Lane and Cedar right, Street. Right. Uh, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe you know, I haven't seen any in Southampton, for example. Um, 
you know, and I've heard it's very difficult to even bring the subject up. Um, you know, you had months to get a, a greenhouse. Are you finding, do you find cooperation from government in, 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 as farmers, or is it uh, an uphill battle? Uh, it's an uphill battle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Farming is an uphill battle. Um, but, I mean, the thing that we're doing um, is really um, community building. You know, I just, I'm lucky because I like to work outside and I love plants. So growing the plants and growing food is really a marvelous uh, bonus. Uh, but we're really building community, and that community is 100% uh, there's a recognition of what this place is, what the land means, what, you know, and, and what community means. Um, we're, part of our mission has always been to be as inclusive as possible, and that is the hardest nut to, to crack, and, and uh, not that I want to crack it, but it's the, it's the most difficult thing, and all we're going to do is keep trying. We, we're working on that. We've had some really wonderful partnerships. Um, so I want to mention that word because um, uh, uh, a, a wise fellow, one of my heroes, Chuck Mathai, who started something called Equity Trust, working with protecting land and with communities, said that despite what we're told in this country, there is no such thing as a private piece of land, that no piece of land is, is solely private or solely public. That, that really it's a mix. What we have in this country that we don't recognize is that everything is a mix of the public and private. And I think this is a direction that we can never forget about is that we have to continue to make public and private partnerships. That can take us into a whole other level of discussion. But that's really, really important. The other piece of that is that education comes out of that, right? Rises out of that. And, and we, it's up to us to educate the next generation who is going to, uh, you know, act in the way that we, that we feel, you know, we need to go. Um, all, all in all, the reason I, you know, read this piece about it's a small change or a big change and everything is, I mean, I think we all recognize that we're, we need a big change mm -hmm. on a global level. Mm -hmm. And of course, that means that we need a local so, level. But, well. but then, so then there's a question, and maybe Scott, because you've thought about this a lot, and the other Scott, um, what is the role of the individual in plastics? Um, the Montauk School fourth grade, I don't know if you guys know, but uh, the fourth grade has been pushing for uh, uh, no drinking straws as a uh, really interesting take. And they've got, um, they've sent 50 letters to restaurants and food service places in Montauk asking them to give up plastic straws, or at least to make them optional. You have to request them. And I sort of, I read it, it's a wonderful story, but I kind of wondered, and maybe you can talk about this, why does straws matter? Why does the plastic bag ban matter? Why does what do I do as an individual matter, even locally? Forget about the gold, gold, well, gold scale. Um, yeah, I mean, a change always you know, comes from the bottom up, I think. That's a truism. Um, collective actions make a huge difference. In terms of how we treat the planet or how we treat ourselves, it's if you start on an individual level and you make a change, um, be it you don't use straws or you don't use um, a disposable piece of plastic that ends up in a landfill and will sit there for, could be up to a thousand years, some of these products. Um, individual change adds up and if enough people start to change, um, you eventually arrive, you arrive at a, 
a tipping point. There's a critical mass, and um, that is really important, I think, for what you can see is very instantaneous change when an entire culture adopts practices like that. France recently, uh, they did ban uh, disposable plastic cutlery, um, which is a huge you know, direction, and that is a top-down change, and sometimes that can work, but in the end, it has to be collective individual action, uh, like banning straws. Um, these little tiny plastic straws, are, you use them for f four or five minutes and throw them away. Most people don't think about it, they, and they really can last for hundreds of years. Uh, we simply can't do that anymore. There's just not enough resources. Um, if you think about what goes into making that little piece of plastic, uh, it's made out of fossil fuel, it's shipped to you maybe hundreds of miles, you use it for two seconds, and then it, has this unintended afterlife. So they're like zombies. You know, it's, we're, our, our world is surrounded by um, this kind of zombie afterlife of these products that we don't think about in this consumer culture. So what else is there at the role of the individual for any, anyone wants to jump in and offer that up? You know, you talk about the shower. Well, I mean, one thing that I think is a natural extension of when you start to make those changes individually, you know, when you do what we do for a living, we have corporate governance you know, and the way that this town looks is almost exclusively related to hundreds of thousands of individual decisions over time at planning boards, zoning boards, and town boards. That's what happens. Um, it's, you're much closer to the action here in a small community than you are at the federal level. So once you integrate something, whatever it is, um, and you can see it happening in East Hampton because some of the things that are talked about here are talked about because of individual actions that people have taken. The decision to engage in politics with a small p is critically important to the outcome of your community. And it's, you know, for the people who sit on those boards, you know, God bless them, but the hours that they spend, I think most of them would agree, are better informed when people show up and clearly articulate what they want as a vision for the community. And when they don't, what elected officials hear is, how'd you let that happen? Who, who, who approved that? Well, if you didn't go, and you couldn't show up, and you couldn't write a letter, then the people who wanted that to happen did show up. Very simple. Simple politics, right? And it does work at the local level. You have the best access to democracy in the town halls in this East End than maybe you have anyplace else. And you should never shy away from that. If you don't feel comfortable, go watch a few sessions, see how it goes. Just start to figure out where you can learn about public hearings, go to the town. All of that will get the things that you believe integrated into the way that the town makes its decisions. And you'll also run into other people that believe what you believe, because they'll be sitting there next to you. And that's a nice way to, to connect with people. So I think that jump from the individual action to political action with a small pay, you can decide whether or not you want to be active in big P politics. But just going and helping, I mean, the guidance that's needed, the easy stuff is done. You know, it's, it's a lot more complicated to do the kinds of things, you know, if we're going to turn that car around that's going 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction, it needs an awful lot of people to help us get there. And I think that town governments right now, they're strapped for cash. They don't have, you know, the, the state government has not been that helpful. The federal government is disappearing, um, for better or worse. But it's on them. And they got to make a ton of decisions every single day that will shape the future of this community. And I think they need and welcome help, even if it's a struggle. Having everybody in there definitely helps the process. So, you know, I'm wondering, like the uh, plastic bag ban or this issue, the situation with the straws, on food production, food consumption, 
I wonder if Brendan or Scott, or both of you, maybe want to take us through just for a moment the idea of, well, we sort of probably all know what slow food is, but, but the idea of why it matters and why, again, why does it matter for us to do these small steps? And clearly what we have for dinner is a very small step, and yet collectively, I assume it may, makes a difference. Uh, we hope it makes a difference. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, now's the time. We're so, we've, we've been aware, people who are involved in what we're doing have been aware for a while that, you know, we've got to seize this moment because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's in the news that, uh, you know, it, actually, you know, Michael Pollan has called it a, a food revolution, and Michael Pollan is a best-selling writer, so um, we're aware of that. And it, it, it probably the, the greatest impact would be on the uh, overall health of the populace, uh, because only uh, in, I've been watching this for a while, I've been doing it for a while, but only really in the last uh, few years has, uh, you know, food and health been spoken about in the same sentence, which is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's happening now. So, um, and uh, the awareness, as far as I can tell, is getting passed on right from kindergarten now. So, um, yeah, we gotta, that's, we gotta keep that up. Um, Brendan, what do you practice in, in your food production that sort of fit into the, to the realm of sustainable agriculture? Sort of us through, through that a little bit? I don't know if I'm that sustainable, to be honest with you. <laughs> I buy plastic trays, I use cardboard. But I use these things because nobody, you know, there's nobody out there making, you know, stuff out of, I don't know, mushrooms or uh, on a large scale. So I have to kind of use that. Um, so I think in everything that I'm listening to up here, I think it's more changing within yourself. Um, that's the biggest thing. And the most important thing is what you eat. And... I have a very uh, observant eye because I get to uh, deliver um, my product to restaurants, to um, supermarkets out here, and also the community at large. And I kind of had to follow, because uh, I'm a 365 day a year grower, um, I'm not just a seasonal guy. So, and I have the ability to, to produce a lot of uh, greens on a very fast, uh, level harvesting twice a week. I can harvest three times a week. I can harvest every day if I wanted to. And so, basically, when I started, uh, I had I bumped around, and the community at large. Once the summer ended and everybody went back to the, most of the people went back to the city, I was kind of left. Well, oh, you know, your product's too expensive. We can't afford it, so we're going to buy the cheap stuff from uh, Mexico and California, and we're going to bring that in. And I was just like, wow, this is crazy. I'm getting rejected by where I live. <laughs> so I just started, I kind of, it, it actually was a good thing because it forced me to go more, not just locally, kind of more, I don't know, multi-universally. Um, just kind of move, being able to go not just out here, but focusing more on out here. I just, and focusing on the individual. What do you eat at home? What do you put in your body? I mean, the things that I see when I, I have to force myself, I have to go to King Cullen because there's no other choice because I need beer. So, um, but just seeing the people walking around and the products that they're buying, what they're eating and the, and the chemicals they're putting into their body. And that's a, it just blows my mind. And what I see in my child's school and 
and her generation and the elderly generation um, seeing the amount of chemicals and pills that they're putting in their bodies. And it's exactly, in, in the farming sense, it's exactly what we're doing to the earth, to the environment. We're polluting it just like we're polluting ourselves. So until the collective consciousness awakens, uh, and hopefully that's soon, um, it's going to be status quo. We're going to have the same discussion 25 years from now, and we're all going to be grading C's, D's, and A's, and passes, because nothing is going to change until you change within. You, start, you stop eating meat three times a day. You stop uh, taking all these pills because you're eating the meat. Uh, you know, driving a Prius doesn't mean shit. You know, it's like the most uh, economically unfriendly car. The amount of parts come from all over the world to build this thing. And then the battery sits in the landfill for eternity. So, and so for me, it's just in my practice of what I do in growing, it's okay, eat what I grow, try to do as little damage as possible, and constantly shift and look at myself. Keep constantly looking in the reflection and looking at myself. What am I doing? And going back to the individuality of it. And the only thing that's going to change, so we don't have this discussion anymore, is stop, stop polluting your bodies. And then maybe the environment will have a shot. That's how I kind of see it. So, so Linda, is there, um, you know, if someone came to you and says, look, I, I can do one thing. You know, what, what would you tell them? One, one thing big, one thing small. Help save the planet, help save the I've never answered a question like that in my whole life. One thing. Yeah. Um, I would say, I think I'd have to just say, be, and I would agree with you, Brendan, be aware of what you're taking from the earth and be aware of what you're putting back into it. Um, I think the key word is aware, aware, be aware, be aware. Climate change is closely linked to healthcare issues, to health issues. Look at, uh, I mean, when I think of clean air, I, I think of what our atmosphere, what's happened to our atmosphere, our challenged atmosphere, will never be the same if we, and it's, continually getting worse. When Bill McKibben started with his 350.org, it was because 350 was the cutoff point. That was, that was it. We won't see 400 carbon dioxide parts per million again. We're, that's our baseline now, 400 parts per And where is it coming from? Fossil fuels. So here in our own community, I have chosen to look at energy because I think we have an opportunity here to make a change here, and then people will say, look, look what they've done in East Hampton. I mean, to have, for me, I used to be an administrator, so I look for a, a replicable model. And I think here, um, and this is why I've been so active in, in the Energy Sustainability Committee, is here we have an opportunity to make a change. It's small because it's here, but it's big because of the idea. And we just need to be participatory and respectful and aware. This is all things that are important 
and that I want to leave as a legacy for my grandchildren. Um, I was going to ask a question of, of Bob and Bill. Both of you spoke specifically about land use. And, and really, when I think of that metaphor of the car going in the wrong direction, I, I think you know, the fuel, the driver here is land use how the land is being parceled up, but specifically how it is used. I mean, that's the driver of, of energy use, that's the driver of waste, driver of you know, surface waste and subsurface waste. I mean, I could go down the list. So, so land use uh, is, for, for me, the big issue. Um, and that goes way beyond zoning. But, um, and, and the methodology that has been used here has actually remained largely the same for 30 or 40 years. It's expanded and become more complicated and become tighter, but, but to uh, actually quote an architect who I spoke to recently, we just keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. Um, and I think you understand what I'm saying about that. So what I'd ask of both of you guys is, if you were to make Maybe you can't come up with one, but if you were to make a, if you can think of one, a specific proposal or, or the beginning of a conversation to get us to think differently about the way we are approaching land use here, what would that proposal or what is that conversation that we're not having? And just, just to expand on that, is there a place in the world where, that has faced the kind of pressure that this place has that actually answered that question in some intelligent, um, sort of cathartic way? A couple of thoughts. One, because of the constitutional rights that we have in property, it's very difficult to do some of the things that a planner academically would like to do. So moving density around, telling people they could have less of something they think that they're entitled to under zoning categories. Zoning itself, uh, I still run into people who think zoning is a bad idea. So it's a continuum. You know, we're somewhere on the spectrum here, but the reality is that, that there is an inherent conflict between communal design, communal sustainable design, and individual properties. There just is. And I have not encountered anything other than the argument over property rights versus conservation on any project that I've ever looked at since 1985. I get to do what I want to do because I pay for it, and I pay taxes on it, and I'm going to build it, and that's the argument. And you guys, with your environmental regulations, are not going to stop me because I have rights. That's the argument. And it applies all over the place. So there are ways to try to, sh to work with that, which this community has actually done a lot of those, which is clustering things and preserving things. Unless you move density from one piece of property to another piece of property, you really are, you know, putting paint on a house that's falling down. Because it is, you just move, you are moving it in many different places, but you can't get it out of there. Now, you don't have in this country things like they have, like agricultural zones, where it's an agricultural use and you don't get an underlying residential density value off of it. So people may, you know, you got to think about that. That's not part of our system. So it's a very big thing to confront when you want to have the property rights issue, which is central to, you know, take a look at the real estate advertising out there. It's a central component of the region and what people believe is an American right. And then say, but it resulted in this big mess. And people go, oh, man, but, you know. But, so we try, but we're stuck in that middle. And I don't know if, if, if Bill probably has more <laughs> intelligent things to say about it. But, um, 
that's the, that's the issue that I have faced since you cannot tell people that you can't have something that they believe is inherent in the underlying zoning by law. And if you do, they will fight you and sue you and cost you something. Doesn't mean, I mean, you can take property. And Barcelona was the last one that I can remember, and it probably meant the last one that will ever happen. The CPF, for example, you cannot take somebody's land and pay them for it unless they want to sell it to you. Um, and I'm not saying those aren't good things. I'm saying that it's an inherent conflict in the academic argument about what you do to design a community that works best for everyone versus the individual freedoms that come with private property rights. We value land in this country. We've chosen to value land on its development, on, on how it can be developed. And that's sort of only that. I will throw this out uh, just before Bill answers the question. You, you didn't actually come up with a proposal, but you, you, you gave us a lot to think about. Um, I watched an interesting movie the other night, One Big Home, about Martha's Vineyard's efforts to uh, limit house sizes. I'm not going to be an advocate or not. It was an interesting movie. They limited house sizes on the island of Martha's Vineyard. Uh, and Chilmark, maybe only in the town of Chilmark. It may not be the entire island, actually. Uh, 35, it begins at 3,500, and I think it peaks out at like close to 5,000. Um, anyway, Bill. Yeah, I, I met the, uh, the director, the maker of the film, and had many discussions with him. And it's better than how it was before, but it's, it's not much. Uh, frankly, if you build the greenest home, if you build a net zero home, which is what we know how to do today without uh, any real difficulty, meaning any significant costs, uh, but you build it out on a five-acre parcel, you know, uh, six miles from the village, that's a lot worse than having not a net zero home, having, having a code minimum home that's right in the village. Uh, so these, these things, you have to see the larger picture. Uh, I agree with Bob that that's a central issue. I know of one instance, uh, and I've been neglectful about doing the research because it's always piqued me and, and we should find out more about it. But the Kennedy National Seashore, which is the ocean side forearm of Cape Cod, uh, was created uh, back in the 50s, and the, sorry, no, in the 60s, right? In the 60s, shortly after JFK was gone. And that, that place looked just like the South Shore did here. It was filled with mansions. And uh, eminent domain took over. People were paid, uh, you know, a mark, fair market value, which is the, the law here as well. And a uh, certain generation, uh, there was a certain uh, time lapse uh, by which uh, those buildings were phased out. And then they were all taken down. We've also had a lot of mansions. I don't know if you know, tremendous number. We have many more mansions in Southampton, and mostly in Southampton and East Hampton. Uh, and then when the, uh, the income tax came in, into play in uh, 1910, I think it was, but even those really wealthy people couldn't afford to keep those buildings up, and a lot of them were torn down. Same thing with World War II. And, and yeah. with World War II. Yeah. We, can, we can make these changes, uh, and I think we really have to. The first thing would be to let's get people together on a, on a basis, uh, on, a, on a regular basis, to at least talk about changing zoning. All these regulations that we have, and, and as much as uh, their, their strength comes from being how, how deeply they're ingrained in the culture. And this is where we have to move. It's a, it's a myth to me that uh, the public domain 
doesn't exist. The private sector maintains that that's there. I mean, all I have to do is point to the yellow line down the middle of the road. Everybody agrees that you cannot, you have to drive on the right side of the road, right? But I want to drive on the left side of the road. <laughs> well, you can't do that, right? We make concessions, and, and there are hundreds of them like that, where we already understand that uh, we are members of, of a com larger community where, where there is a public realm, and that we do little things every day that acknowledge that. We have to make that grow. Uh, so I, I want to uh, just, I want to hug the, the, the time here, but two things about what, what you can do, and then one other thing to put on the table because it hasn't been mentioned. Now, I'll, actually, I'll start with that. We have two ways of raising capital for the common good. We have uh, income taxes and we have property taxes. When you have income taxes, you can curve the tax so that wealthy people pay a lot more. And we've, we haven't seen that work as well as we have in the past. I mean, the, the upper bracket now is under 40%, and uh, there were times when it was as high as 90%. So we have, we have to do some work, right? But the property tax thing is a big driver here, working in the aggressive direction. You hear, most of all, when, when we come to uh, say we want affordable housing here, there, and so forth, we talk about property values, we talk about raising the tax, you know, the kids, there'll be kids in the, the schools, hopefully there'll be kids in the schools, that's what it's all about, and that costs us money. Why do we pay for some services with the progressive income tax and other services, uh, other services, community services, with a regressive property tax? I think we should do away with the property tax and have all income tax. But that's just something we don't, certainly don't have time to talk about now. Right. If you haven't heard about it, you heard it here, and start thinking, of, start thinking, working on that. The other thing is, you know, what do you do? What can I do? I advise that you take something that's near and dear to you, whatever it is, since it's all connected. It's a whole bunch of little things, and it's a big thing that we're working on. It's all connected. Take something that you really enjoy, what you really like and just do that. And it may be totally ethereal, but it, if it builds community and it helps slow down the car, or even we get to the point, turn the car, go, go in the correct direction, then it's the right thing, and just stay with it. It could be very ethereal. I know somebody, he's sitting right here today, who's made it his interest to go and bring music to people, and he sings, and he sings, and he goes, and he goes to different Occasionally, he goes wherever the hell he can and say, we're going to sing, and this is what he does. I th that's, that's a very helpful thing to do. It's yeah, a very a, powerful thing to do. That's right? a very interesting question maybe to put to, to some of you. I mean, what you maybe are doing right. as individuals or would, or would like to do, um, or any other thoughts uh, about the question of sustainability? watch a movie that was based on the 60s, it's only been a couple of decades, you know, three decades, and we're seeing such changes in our weather in a short period of time, and yet we still think it's so cool to have the latest in electronics, whether it's medicine or whatever, entertainment. How many people here have taken the bus? You know, the S92? Right. Yeah, it's, and, and, there's, and there's frankly almost a stigma, stigma to taking it. I mean, I've had people say, but I would never take the bus, because if someone saw me take the bus, they would think I had a D-weight. <laughs> but the bus routes are, they're not, 
really actually even feasible if you've tried to get from point A to point B to get to a job. You almost can't do it, but it's it's something we could, I mean, the Jitney proves it can be done. There is a, I don't know, I think the bus system could be looked at and it would be great. Yeah. And you can oh. put your bike on the front of the bus if you don't want to, whatever it is. Yeah. Gray and then Terry, I think. I think that, you know, to crystallize this, one of the great things is, is when people get together, there's a lot of habitual things because of the way society is set up that lead us to take, to make choices that are not necessarily um, consistent with our objectives and our values. So um, in a capitalist society and in a, in a democracy, we're at the bottom of the pyramid as we discussed. So the choices that we make in the products, equipments, and services that we buy and that we um, use in our everyday lives is the substance of um, the, the impact that we have on the world. So um, it's hard to make those choices with awareness. Um, and a lot of times, I think that in the process of building community and getting together like this, just identifying what those choices can be and then um, getting together to remind each other to continue to make those choices on a day-to-day -day basis is really the bottom of the pyramid because, again, you know, they're going to make what we use or what's, we'll, what we use will be made and in the amounts that we, uh, that we use them, we continue to make it too. So, um, you know, being, bringing awareness to, to the choices that we make on a day-to-day -day basis and participating in community and, and in democracy because, again, if we, if we don't show up to the, uh, to the town hall meeting, they're going to be wondering what do, do we want. And so, you know, it just it takes some effort, but uh, the, the, the benefit of that is that we get to get together and we get to talk about things that are meaningful for our, for our lives and for our children's lives. And, you know, bring a, a more positive uh, result consistent with what we what we want. The ubiquitous zombie plastic fork. <laughs> I was at the Clearwater Festival. I think it was last year or the year before. And I'm putting my food, in, and there's a person minding how you put your garbage away. The Clearwater Festival is a great place for this. They had forks, and they said, throw those there. I said, wait a minute, that, that's the garbage with the food. The forks are made out of corn. Your yeah, trays might be made so out of corn. There's so many alternatives now that, um, yeah. unfortunately, do have choices. Um, there's do you see them in any delis or any, yeah, right? They are starting to show up, matter of fact. Uh, Cornstarch-based products, uh, fiber-based. Um, yeah, so we should ask local Absolutely. stores, hey, have you heard of, now, do you know where they, they got them? There's been many suppliers now. Um, all it takes is two minutes of research on the internet and you find these places. And they cost maybe a couple cents more per, per unit, but when you have a responsible business who is willing to make that, um, that assessment and, that, and then can take that as a way to show the community that they care about this problem, I think that's huge. And in fact, I kind of am you know, hoping that our business community can step up to do that exact kind of thing. Do they make trays? They do. Yeah, all to replace things. the Every plastic tray. thing that's made out of plastic today can be made out of a totally compostable material, believe it or not. Two minutes of internet research. I, I personally wouldn't buy anything that was made out of corn. Mm -hmm. Corn is the, pretty much the, the killer of our society. Um, the way that it's processed, the way that it's grown, the chemicals, the GMO. It is, but it's not just corn. I mean, there are other, yes. No, I, absolutely. I agree with that because actually these yeah. things aren't completely compostable yet. 
And that is very yeah. true, but there is also fiber-based, there's wheat-based, um, bamboo. Yeah, and re recycle is probably one of the best things. Most of the, I'm looking at new trays that are made by recycled bottles. Mm. Um, so that's kind of the direction that I'd go in. I wouldn't buy anything made out of corn. I'm very um, excited that you guys are as hopeful as you are. You know, I, I, um, when I look at the community, I've lived on the West Coast for about five years in different parts, and I feel like there's so much sort of ahead of, you know, the game. And um, so I come back to East Hampton, and there's very limited public transportation. There's no bike lanes. There's um, no real recycling of the garbage unless you bring your own you know, garbage to the dump, it's, you know, it saddens me. Um, and so I'm sort of curious whether any of you folks have sort of lived in different areas where you've seen... I, I just want to say before I, that one thing I'm hopeful about is um, I know so many people in this room and I know how many of you are working on the kind of issues that we need to work on. That's so encouraging. Here you are, so mm -hmm. thank you for being here. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I didn't mean that to be the last day. <laughs> Just on, on what we can do, I think um, a lot of us in this room care very deeply about our landscape, our yards, and our gardens. And in addition to not throwing toxins down our drain, we can all commit right now, very easily, right, Edwina, to a <laughs> toxin-free landscape. It's, it's really not hard. Right here. And there's a gentleman here, I think he's still here, Paul Munez, who's starting a sustainable lawn care business, and he's a 100% electric fleet, which is reducing the noise, which is, nobody's mentioned it, but noise pollution is a huge uh, problem out here. So it's a 60% reduction in noise pollution, as well as, you know, I don't know what the reduction in carbon, but huge reduction in carbon. So we should all be supporting companies like that who are doing really, you know, pretty groundbreaking stuff, but hopefully, you know, it'll be mainstream. Buy a sheep. Yeah, I also wanted to speak of the same subject. Um, I don't, in, in many communities around the country, people do speak to their landscapers, and my point is that the two cycle engines that are used on the gas leaf blowers and weed trimmers pollute more contaminants than a 6,200-pound Chevy pickup truck. And that's been tested repeatedly, and it's been proven true. Yet, I live in the Amagansett Lanes, and every single day of the week, there are three leaf blowers pointing at a leaf on a lawn for an hour a day, and the people aren't even here yet, repeatedly. And some of them even have them twice a week. So perhaps if the town cannot ban them or limit them, there are no restrictions whatsoever, 12, 13 hours a day, they perhaps could talk to their lead people and say, please, 10 years ago we all had breaks, nobody did this. <laughs> Suddenly, everybody must be totally lead free. But you touch on such an interesting point. I mean, we're talking about, you know, those of us in the room are sharing these thoughts, we're hearing them, whether we agree with them or not, and yet, so much of what happens here are the big house people that we're talking about who are not in this room. And the difficulty, particularly for the local officials who are here, and God bless many of them for being here, um, is communicating and regulating to a uh, essentially non-attentive audience. And that's a huge puzzle because 
you know, they, they may not know what the East Hampton Star is, uh, or Quail Hill Farm, or never heard of the, the group, or the Energy Sustainability Committee, or whatever it's called. Um, <laughs> if, they're, if they're not in the room when the two-cycle ordinance is passed, but they're banning them, oh, yeah. then they're not here. I, I will... Uh, <laughs> I, I, will, I, I do want you to know that on the South Fork now, two-thirds of the entire housing stock are second homes, yeah. and we're rolling very quickly to making that three-quarters. That's why I still say we're going in the wrong direction. So this is, that's, this is the, the fundamental threat to our community. And this is why we're going to have brownouts this summer. There will be brownouts this With summer. fossil fuel generating plants on Buell right. Lane, right? Right. right? I'm from Southampton, so please excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I applaud what the Sustainability Committee is doing. Bill and I were on the Southampton Sustainability Committee. And mm. Bill's still there. One of the points that I made at that time to our town board was that the best bang for the buck as far as energy use is energy efficiency. It's not buying Prius. It's not using renewable energy. Those are all good things. But if you insulate your house, you're doing a good thing. One more point. I showed the town board point, a chart of Suffolk County and it showed thousands of little rectangles, which were established in the 50s. That's why we have what we have. When the farmland was zoned residential, we created what we have. I couldn't agree more with what Bill says. I agree it seems like pie in the sky, particularly if you're an elected official. But the fact is, it doesn't have to happen overnight, but we need to turn this car around, even if it takes decades, and special means of purchasing land, putting it back into farmland, moving people into central communities. We have to do that, and we can start now, and using Bill suggestions for all of us to follow. Resident out here, I work as a research vessel captain for Stony Brook University, and so I have access to a fair amount of the science, and I happen to chair the uh, Eastern Long Island chapter of Surfrider Foundation. And what I would encourage, humbly, to everyone, is what I think has been said. Find something that's important to you individually. You know, you can use the analogy of a car that's going 100 miles an hour, you can also use the analogy of being 100 pounds overweight. You're not going to have a crash diet and have any kind of success. So pick something that is important to you. Research it. Find an alternative. It's personal choice. We go out and we try to educate folks to make personal choices. This isn't something that we can necessarily legislate our way out of. I don't know that, you know. <laughs> I, was, I, I recently heard <clears throat> someone say, it's easy to be an, a pessimist. Have the courage to be an optimist. Find something important to you. Reduce. Ask the person not to give you a straw. Look at your garbage. Start a compost pile. Don't use chemicals on your lawns. 
don't, don't leave blow. Rake them if, you, if they bother you that much. If they don't, leave them there. Right. So, you know, all I, all I can say is that I applaud the turnout here tonight. Everybody taking the time to be here. The expert panel. And uh, I'm proud to be part of a group of folks here on the East End who are concerned about the environment, who are concerned about the rise in sea level, the impact that that's going to have on us all, all in the face of current administrative difficulties. <laughs> I'm trying to be an optimist, man. <laughs> I have a master's degree in public administration. I did 20 years in government. I got a captain's license. I've never been happier in my life because I get to talk to folks like you who appreciate the environment, who appreciate what we live in, who stop and look around every once in a while and see what we have, see what we could have, and have the courage to go out and tell other people about it. So thanks. So um, didn't they have a closing thought or two, but I definitely want to reiterate that um, you know, we do want to, those who can run over the talk house for the retreat benefit yeah. tonight and get over there as quick as possible. Um, super exciting. And what I heard tonight is that we're, we're both in sort of a long game, but there's things that you could do tonight, tomorrow, in your own home, in your own decisions about what you eat, to, to kind of make that long game a little, a little short. How pitchforks and storm the mansion? Burn them down. So, Scott mentioned, Scott Chasky, that is, uh, counseled that if we aspire to big change, Without a clear destination, we need a poet. Dude, you have a poet for, poem for me? <laughs> I need one. The strong song tows us, long ear sick. Blind we follow, rain slant, spray flick. To fields we do not know. Night float us, offshore wind shout. Ask the sea what's lost, what's left, what horn sunk, what crown adrift. Where we are, who knows of kings, who sup while day fails, who, swinging his axe to fell kings, guesses where we go. Thanks to the panel. Thanks to all of you for being here. Great questions, great energy. Let's do it again. Yeah.